This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you want to join us for a helping of history every Thursday, then be sure to subscribe. Now, this week, we're returning to Roman times for the first of a new four-part mini-series on Hadrian's Wall. It's to celebrate the 1900th anniversary of Britain's most famous Roman relic. To get us started, we're looking back at the man behind the wall. That was, of course, Emperor Hadrian, who was born on the 24th of January, 76 AD. But who was Hadrian? How did he become the ruler of the Roman Empire? Why did he want to build a 73-mile-long wall? And what would the wall have been like in his day? Joining us to answer all those questions and more is English Heritage Properties historian Andrew Roberts. Hello, Charles. Well, we've spoken about Hadrian's Wall on a number of occasions, but today we're going to look back at the man behind it in more detail. Who was Hadrian and where was he born? So the man we call Hadrian was known to the Romans as Publius Aelius Hadrianus. He was born in Rome to a family from Italica in the Roman province of Baetica, so near uh, Seville in modern-day Spain. And when he was born, Rome had been governed by an emperor for about a century. So he is born and brought up under the reign of Vespasian, who was famous for starting the Colosseum. Both Hadrian's father and mother are from Romano-Spanish families, that is, families who were originally Italians who settled in Spain during Rome's wars against Hannibal and the Carthaginians in around 200 BC. And his paternal family indeed hails specifically from a town called Hadria in northern Italy. So by Hadrian's time, his family are members of the imperial elite His great-great-great-great-grandfather is the first to to reach what's known as sort of senatorial status, making them almost like members of the aristocracy in medieval England. These are the, the group of people that hold the highest levels of office. They sit in the Senate of Rome and are required to be fabulously wealthy. There's something approaching billionaires in today's terms. So highly influential almost like the landed gentry of antiquity with MP kind of status, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. What, what about his youth and particularly his relationship with his father, which is obviously brief, I gather? Yeah, so as a child, we think that Hadrian would have lived in Rome with his parents, even though the family wealth is concentrated in Baetica, it's something of a, of a similar situation to the aforementioned aristocrats. They would have had a country seat where they would have had land holdings. That's where the money comes from. And then they would have also had accommodation in Rome, which is sort of the centre of politics and business. We don't know the specifics so much about the specifics of his, his upbringing, but we can assume a very privileged lifestyle. He would have been educated by the finest tutors. And we know that he was particularly interested in ancient Greek culture, earning him the nickname of Greculus or the Little Greek. We know, and this is a bit more speculative, that he was fond of hunting in later life, that he composed love poetry in later life. So presumably education in these things formed part of his his upbringing. And we'll talk so, about his, his Greek interests a little bit later as well, won't we? Indeed, yeah. And, but as you, as you alluded to, I think 
by far the most significant event of his childhood is the death of Hadrian's father when he's only 10 years old. And as a result, uh, he becomes essentially the ward of his father's cousin, a man called Marcus Ulpius Trajanus, who will become the emperor we know as Trajan. So uh, Hadrian would have essentially finished his schooling under the care of, of Trajan and come into his, his majority. Roman men typically come of age at around about the age of 17, but there's some evidence to suggest that he was quite precocious in this regard, that he may have adopted the toga virilis, which is the toga that Roman men would wear, symbolising their status as a, as a man and as a citizen, at about the age of 14 or, or, or 15. And then at the age of 18, he starts uh, his political career, gaining administrative roles in Rome, and then picking up some quite serious positions, serious postings in the army. This is a pretty standard thing for the sons of the senatorial class to go into the military as reasonably senior officers in order to sort of train, give them experience. And all the while, his guardian Trajan is holding down some important military commands as a loyal follower of the emperor Domitian. And then after the murder of Domitian, a man called Nerva takes over. And due to Trajan's status with the army, he becomes a key ally of Nerva, and Nerva actually names Trajan as its successor. So then when Nerva dies, Trajan becomes emperor in AD 98. Hadrian's connection then to, effectively, his foster father, does that sort of spark his military career and his rise to power? I mean, wasn't his father also connected to the military? Yeah. So when we say connected to the military, it's there's not a separation of the so the government of the empire and the army of the empire. If you want a career in what we might broadly term politics, you do both. So to make your way up the career ladder, you will hold postings in Rome in the various magistracies and other associated roles that were available to the senatorial class. And then you'd have postings in different units of the army, and you could kind of work your way up the career ladder, incorporating positions on sort of both sides, as it were, in the army and in the uh, administration. And, and somebody who was destined for higher office is going to essentially have both. Being the son of the man who is the future emperor is clearly a huge advantage familial connection is normally a pretty solid basis for a stellar career. But of course, at this point in Hadrian's life, he's in his early 20s, essentially becoming emperor is not certain. There are potential other rivals, and you've also got to show that you are going to be capable and worthy of taking on such a high office. So we actually see him kind of working to secure favour with, with Trajan himself very early. He, he races to meet Trajan, to be the first to congratulate him on becoming emperor, beating one of his potential rivals, his, his brother-in-law, a man called Servianus. But he, he clearly is, is, is a favoured relative. He, he marries Trajan's great niece, Sabina, at the age of 24. So he's obviously doing the right things and picking up the trust, uh, the confidence of Trajan. And very luckily for Hadrian, Trajan's style of rule really plays to Hadrian's strengths. Trajan is an ambitious, he's a very aggressive emperor, 
And although at this time the Roman Empire is, is vast, stretching from North Africa to the Euphrates, to the Danube, to Northern Britain, Trajan is really determined to go further. And as a result, Hadrian is going to gain quite extensive military experience as a decorated general during the conquests of Trajan in Dacia, which is modern-day Romania. These, these conquests, of course, are famously recorded on uh, Trajan's column in, in Rome. He's in the perfect setting. He's actually got a father figure who's really going to help catapult him through this uh, career path. Could you give us a few highlights about some of his achievements in his military and political career before he becomes emperor himself? Well, he's, he's clearly involved in the fighting in the Dacian Wars. And he's also very clearly an admired leader. Roman historians record that Hadrian was the kind of general that practices what he preached. He would enforce a very stern physical discipline on his men, but he would also do it himself. So Hadrian is known for eating the same food as his soldiers. He walks with his soldiers. He rides with his soldiers. He doesn't take the sort of the easy way out that was available to men of his, his wealth and means. But at the same time, in addition to the military reputation that he's building, as one of Trajan's closest allies, the important offices of the Roman state are also open to him. And Trajan's keen to put relatives, particularly relatives who are loyal to him in those positions. So he becomes a governor of a Roman province along the Danube frontier. He serves in Rome as consul, which is sort of traditionally the highest executive role beneath the emperor. And so he, he's clearly a key ally of Trajan at this time and, and, and very well trusted. So that describes in some way the rise to power. You can sort of see from the CV that he's been notching up some good experiences that would serve him well as emperor. But how does he actually get to become emperor? Because presumably something has to happen to Trajan and a decision has to be made as well for Hadrian to get in that position. So what happens? Well, Trajan goes back to war in AD 114. This time he's going up against the Parthian Empire and campaigning around the area that is, is roughly speaking, modern-day Iraq. And the Parthian Empire is quite a considerably powerful empire in this time. And Trajan, despite some setbacks, achieves some quite staggering conquests. During this period, again, during these wars, Hadrian holds some key military and administrative posts. And immediately after the war in AD 117, Trajan falls ill and dies on his way back to Rome. Hadrian is adopted by Trajan on his deathbed, thus becoming his nominated successor. Now, there's a bit of controversy about this. There are some accusations floating around that Hadrian essentially seizes his moment and almost kind of forges this will in order to, to make himself look like the successor. But what seems to have happened is that whatever the circumstances, the Senate has confidence in Hadrian and are happy to essentially ratify that decision. Probably the deal was slightly sweetened by the fact that some of Hadrian's allies executed four senators that opposed him. So there was probably a little bit of leverage brought to bear on the others here. And this kind of slightly bloody type of accession is, is not untypical of the Roman Empire at this time. Okay. So you've described just there that Hadrian 
is going to be emperor either by his own hands or by the decision of Trajan, his adopted father. But what you seem to be saying is that Hadrian actually isn't adopted until Trajan is really about to draw his last breath. Yeah, so he's only actually formally adopted at that point. And that essentially makes him Trajan's nominated successor. So I don't know why that didn't happen previous to that. Hadrian himself adopts and nominates a successor, in fact, two generations of successors before his own death. This is not uncommon. You know, it's very rare that the imperial crown gets passed down from father to son. And often there are a couple of potential successors kind of waiting in the wings, as it were. But then, of course, is one thing being named emperor. It's another thing maintaining that position. And like most new emperors, Hadrian now faces something of a dangerous moment because he has to show that he is up to the job. He has to stamp his authority on the empire, particularly because some of the peoples living within the empire choose this moment to rise up in revolt, particularly in the areas that Trajan has just conquered. Now, the typical thing to do at this point, the typical thing that previous emperors have done, is to go on the offensive, to go to suppress these these uprisings, and also to make new conquests, because that really shows that you are militarily capable. It shows that you are daring, shows that you're ambitious, shows that you can achieve glory for Rome. But actually, Hadrian does something quite daring, quite different, in that he he actually cedes a lot of territory, a lot of territory in the new province of Dacia, a lot of territory that they've taken from the Parthians. So we've gone very quickly from Trajan conquering all these new lands, trying to be the sort of the great conquering emperor, the new Alexander the Great, to Hadrian saying, actually, I don't want these problems. I don't want to have to deal with these problems. These are a drain on imperial resources. And instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring peace to the empire. I'm going to bring stability and clearly define limits to the empire. But he's going to have to do this in in a way that doesn't show weakness. He's going to have to do this in a way that shows that he is strong and powerful. Yeah, that's really interesting. That sets him apart from his predecessor. It's almost like um, a process of expansion and then contraction. It's almost like he's got an eye on history as he comes to power with this decision-making. Yeah, he certainly does, actually, because if you look at particularly Trajan, but also Trajan's predecessors, they're all doing a similar kind of thing. They're all looking to be expansionists. Now, actually, what Hadrian's doing does have a precedent because Augustus does this. Augustus is essentially the first emperor in all but name. He does mount some quite spectacular conquests, but halfway through his reign, he actually changes his mind after some quite significant losses. He says, no, we're not going to do any more of this expansion. I'm just going to bring peace to Rome within our existing boundaries. So it's not without precedent. It's just without immediate precedent. And do you think it would have been, I suppose it might not have been in living memory for a lot of Romans at the time, but would this have seemed fresh and dynamic as a policy? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think, yeah, clearly it would have, wouldn't have been a living memory, but Augustus is, is, is a figure who looms very large over the Roman state and, over Roman state and society. I think to answer your question, obviously I can't get inside the minds of, of the Romans at this time, but I would say that the fact that Hadrian stays in power and stays in power for a while would imply that this is successful, implies that this is accepted. So we've described, I think, pretty well what's going on in the Roman Empire at home, further afield. We've sort of charted 
the background of Hadrian, how he's got to power. And now we're looking at this phase of consolidation, I suppose. Now, when did Hadrian actually order the construction of Hadrian's Wall in uh, Britannia, in northern England? So Hadrian visits Britain in AD 122. It's about five years into his reign. There are some scholars who believe that the wall may have been started slightly before Hadrian's visit, but AD 122 is generally accepted as the date of his visit and makes most sense for when the wall was begun. And indeed, that's that's why we are celebrating the 1900th year anniversary this year. How do we know that it was Hadrian's idea to build the wall? I mean, it's got his name. <laughs> He's got his name on it. <laughs> And actually, we know that it was essentially called Hadrian's Wall by the Romans, thanks to a discovery in 2003 of uh, essentially a, s- a small souvenir bowl known as the Staffordshire Moorlands Pan. And this mentions on it, inscribed upon this bowl, is the Latin name for the wall, which is literally translated as the Wall of Alias. Remember, uh, Hadrian's full name is Publius Alias Hadrianus alias being his the name of his family essentially so essentially it's saying this is this is hadrian's wall this belongs to hadrian in terms of understanding whether it was his idea certainly we can point to some evidence that it was his policy and um, we have testimony written in a biography known as biography of hadrian known as the historia augusta which tells us that hadrian was the first to construct a wall which uh, quote was to separate the barbarians from the romans it doesn't tell us a huge amount more but tells us that he at least ordered it to be constructed and we can also derive the information from what we know about how the empire works only the emperor can command and pay for a building project, a military building project of this scope. Now, beyond that, we are less certain about the level of detail that he would have engaged with. Uh, He may have simply given a, a, a broad order, visited Britain, and maybe inspected it or consulted with some of his generals in Britain and expected them to get on with it. Some scholars believe that Hadrian could have been engaged in quite a lot of detail with the actual design process. He perhaps would have just you know, been involved in the decisions of where it went, what it looked like, how it functioned. And while we can't be conclusive, we, we don't have a key bit of, bit of evidence that tells us this for certain, it's a reasonable assumption that as, as somebody who is an experienced military man, he would have had the ability to engage in the process. He was obviously very much interested in architecture, we know from, from, from other events in his life. He'd been to places such as Athens where there were considerable structures, other, other walls, other defensive walls, which he would have known personally. How does this wall then fit in with his general border policy at the time? Because you've mentioned that there was this idea to separate the Romans from the barbarians. Well, there's a couple of different important contexts that, that we need to consider when answering this question. The first is the history of the Romans in Britain and how they've they've expanded. The Romans initially invaded in AD 43 under the Emperor Claudius and quite quickly exerted their control over the southern half of Britain, but then only really started pushing forward into northern England in the AD 70s and, and 80s, where they pushed through northern England into what is modern-day Scotland before 
events elsewhere in the in the empire meant that they had essentially retreated to uh, sort of a line of fortifications linked by a major road between Carlisle and Corbridge, so just south of where Hadrian's Wall was to be constructed. Now, this essentially is, is, is the frontier zone. And as we know, Hadrian is quite focused upon securing the empire as it is within its existing boundaries. And before he comes to Britain, he's going around different parts of the empire and he's reviewing his army and he's reforming the military installation. So he arrives in Britain in AD 122, fresh from northern Germany, where he is essentially building a wall. <laughs> in this instance, a, a sort of a wooden palisade. So it's clearly a broader policy to visit these frontiers and to build these considerable barriers. Now, there may well have been some local reasons for, for doing this. There are some evidence to suggest that parts of Britain, presumably the north, were in, in revolt during the early part of Hadrian's reign, and that he or his subordinates had to mount a campaign in order to suppress them. So perhaps the wall is a specific response to events in Britain, but it need not be. It may just be a continuation of a broader policy. Well, that raises the interesting question then, doesn't it, really? That if you create a wall stopping emigration to Scotland or migration to to modern day Scotland, then you keep the people that you've uh, controlled and conquered in a pen, in a way, don't you, in northern England? That sort of helps suppress any uprisings in Northern England, in a way. Mm. Well, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about whether whether I've never really thought about it in terms of controlling emigration. I think it's often thought about as controlling or preventing any kind of incursion, any kind of raiding into the into the province. I don't know. I'm personally. I mean, scholars argue that that it might have been the result of of some kind of uprising or some kind of military incursions. I personally don't think that it necessarily stops an uprising. I think a, a building a wall, changing essentially the landscape of northern England, is more likely to provoke a revolt, which then has to be suppressed rather than necessarily settle anything. I wonder if it's more about securing the border from raiding on a long-term basis. We could discuss it all day, I think, because it raises very interesting questions. But um, we've mentioned before that there was this wall in Germany that Hadrian was having built as well. The wall in Britannia, in northern England, is made of stone. So obviously there's there's a difference there. How else were Hadrian's plans different in Britannia? Well, Hadrian's wall is far more complex than any other frontier that Hadrian built. As you said, it's, it's made of stone. So that already makes it far more labor intensive, far more expensive than other frontiers. And that stone wall is wide, it's tall, it stretches for 80 Roman miles and is fronted in the main by a, a deep ditch. But it doesn't really end there. Hadrian's wall is the most elaborate of all of the Roman frontier works. There is a garrison of soldiers accommodated about every 500 meters, either in garrisons of around a dozen in these towers that we call turrets, or else in garrisons of a couple of a dozen in small fortlets called mile castles every Roman mile. And then there are also large forts with garrisons of either 500 or 1,000 soldiers. And then finally, there is a huge earthwork 
what we know as the Vallum, which runs to the south of Hadrian's Wall in parallel, which acts as a sort of a, a backstop, creating this heavily militarised zone. So that's a lot of defence, really, and a very imposing structure. You would have a lot to clamber over if you were a barbarian from modern-day Scotland wanting to try and launch some sort of assault. You'd be pretty intimidated by all that. Well, yeah, and, and I think that that's, in the first instance, primarily that that is what makes Hadrian's Wall so different to what's come before. As I mentioned, there have been military works in this frontier zone before along the Stangate Road, but these are very different style of, of frontier. They're more about placing key military installations at key points in the landscape. You can monitor people passing through the landscape, but you can't entirely prevent it. You might be able to respond to trouble, but you don't stop everybody. Hadrian's Wall is essentially a stop line. He's closing off this frontier to passage north and south. You can't casually cross into the province of Britannia anymore. And it would have been an effective defence. You talked about defence. It would be an effective defence against all but a large determined army. And there are not many of those around in this area. The only one is really the Roman army. But then there are also other things that it can do. We talked about the mile castles, uh, every Roman mile. These are essentially a protected gateway through which you could potentially monitor passage of legitimate travellers, and you could use them as bases to patrol to the north of the wall. So in addition okay. to these various sort of functional aspects of Hadrian's Wall, the wall is also something of a statement. It's kind of over-engineered for what it needs to do. You can do the same kind of things. You can control access. You can stop raiding without all of the bells and whistles that Hadrian's Wall is equipped with. And so I think the final thing to consider when we, we're, we're talking about the wall's purpose is that perhaps Hadrian is making a statement, not just to potential aggressors against the empire, but also to his, his fellow Romans, to the people that he's, he's ruling over. He's not claiming glory through extending the empire, but he can claim that he is definitively protecting the border of the farthest flung province of the empire. We've established as well that Hadrian came to Britain in AD 122. Do we know how long he stayed and what he did next? Whatever his level of engagement with the construction of Hadrian's Wall, he's probably not in Britain for more than about a year before continuing the tour of the empire. So he's been to Germany, now he's come to Britain. He goes off to Spain, to his, his family's homeland, also to Asia, the Greek islands, particularly to Athens, somewhere he's very keen to visit, and finally then returns to Rome. And indeed, travelling his empire is a constant feature of his reign. When back in Rome, Hadrian implements many of the typical policies of a newly crowned emperor. He wipes out the debts of many of the citizens. It was a very popular move. He pays for games. He pays for shows. He hands out money to the people to keep them on his side. And he's also a great builder. He funds the building of public buildings in many of the places he visits and indeed in Rome itself. So, for example, he rebuilds the Pantheon, which obviously is one of the great legacies of Roman architecture and culture. His building program is not entirely benevolent. He also builds his own vast and opulent villa at Tivoli, which, as far as we know, is the largest, was the largest in the Roman world at some 900 rooms. 
And he went to Greece as well, didn't he? He was. We mentioned that earlier that he was uh, called the Little Greek when he was younger. He was quite the Hellenophile, wasn't he? Yeah. So Greece and and particularly Athens was a um, an intellectual cultural superpower long before the Romans came along. And Rome, to a certain extent, inherits the Greek cultural tradition, albeit there's a little bit of ambivalence towards it within Roman society. But Hadrian is an unabashed ancient Greek superfan. He visits Athens in his early 30s before he becomes emperor and then comes back again twice when he is emperor. And he, he very much immerses himself in the culture. He's almost kind of like living out his dreams, I, I feel, of being part of this great intellectual culture. So he does various things such as becoming a citizen, an official citizen of, of Athens. He takes part in religious rituals dating back to the time that Athens is this intellectual superpower. He adorns Athens with public buildings, including new library and indeed the vast temple of Olympian Zeus, which you can still see in Athens today. And really, this is part of his legacy. His commitment to Greek culture means that he wants to bring it not just to himself, not just to his court, but to the wider empire. And he he establishes a sort of a brotherhood almost of Greek cities throughout Greece. And their job is really to promote Greek culture and to spread it throughout the Eastern Empire. And as a, as a sort of aside here, Roman emperors were traditionally clean shaven. Beards are, are more of a Greek thing. And of course, Hadrian famously brings the beard into fashion. And perhaps this is because he's so interested in, in Greek culture and, and indeed fashion. OK, well, let's move on to um, why that beard might have been attractive, because I don't know if we talked about Hadrian's love life until now. Yeah, so reasonably early on in his, in his early 20s, he married Trajan's great niece, Sabina Augusta. But we also know that he had male lovers throughout his life. It's quite a common thing for Roman men, including many emperors, to have sexual relationships with other men alongside their marriage. And the most famous of Hadrian's male lovers was a young Bithynian called Antinous, so a man from the region of, of modern-day Turkey, northern Turkey. And Hadrian meets him while on one of his many journeys around his empire. And he's clearly quite smitten with him. Antinous accompanies Hadrian alongside Sabina on his trip to Egypt. They see the sites together, they go hunting together. But eventually the relationship ends in tragedy because Antinous is drowned whilst the imperial party is sailing down the Nile in October of AD 130. And he dies at a, at a mere 20 years of age. Uh, Hadrian is, is clearly devastated by this and commemorates his death in the most bombastic, extravagant manner. So near the spot where he dies, Hadrian founds a city in his name. He builds statues throughout the empire to celebrate uh, his youthful beauty. And in fact, more images of Antinous, this sort of lowly nobody, potentially a slave, from the middle of nowhere survive from the Roman world than any other figure aside from Augustus and indeed Hadrian himself. And most controversially of all, Hadrian has him worshipped as a god, which is an unprecedented honour for anyone who was not a member of the imperial family. That's remarkable. For people to try and understand this with our different way of viewing things, how would Hadrian's wife, Sabina, have seen this relationship. You mentioned that they were all three together visiting Egypt. So what was the dynamic, do you think? 
Oh, well, it's difficult to know. I guess a lot of it would depend upon personality, but marriages were very much um, about family, about having a family, having a legitimate family, and, and sort of bringing the next generation uh, into the world, and, and also were political. You know, I, it, it's probably the case that Hadrian marries her for political convenience to tie himself to Trajan, and Sabina would probably, A, have not had much choice in the matter, and B would have just accepted that as the as the way it is, really. And so you can kind of separate love and sexual relationships from from marriage to a certain extent. It doesn't mean that they don't sometimes align, but it's probable in the case of Hadrian that they didn't align, and it wouldn't have been something particularly unusual. So how long does Hadrian reign as emperor? So Hadrian is still ruling the empire in the 8130s, his only other major military campaign takes place in the early 8130s, where he ruthlessly suppresses various uprisings in Turkey and in Judea. And then he dies in his early 60s of heart disease on the 10th of July, AD 138, in the Roman resort town of Baiae on the Gulf of Naples. And so ends quite a considerable career, one which has a long-lasting legacy not just for the empire, but also for Britain. And when he dies at around his early 60s, how much of Hadrian's Wall has been built? So there are various estimates regarding how long it took to build the wall. Some of them suggest that it could have been done in as little as four years. And some suggest that it's still basically going on by the time that Hadrian is final days. Personally, I think the initial build would have been done reasonably quickly, but that actually by the point at which Hadrian dies, they're already changing it and renewing it in places. So to the west of the river Irthing in Cumbria, the wall was built initially out of turf, but before the end of Hadrian's reign, they're rebuilding it in stone, essentially making it a bit more robust and, and, and longer lasting. But then I think that one of the curious things is that after all of this effort, when Hadrian dies, his successor Antoninus Pius takes over, and then he all but abandons Hadrian's Wall, pushes the frontier forward to a new wall, which we know as the Antonine Wall, between the Firth of Forth and the Firth of Clyde in, in Monday, Scotland. So it, it almost doesn't really have much of a legacy at all, only that when Antoninus dies, his wall is abandoned, and the Romans move back to Hadrian's Wall, which is refurbished and reoccupied, and is to remain essentially the official border of the Roman Empire for a further 250 years. Very interesting. So it's almost like you have expansion, contraction, expansion through the emperors who appear. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of a reminder that th these kind of survivals aren't to be taken for granted, because the, particularly for the Romans, because they weren't averse to just abandoning something by a previous emperor and deciding, nope, that's it. It doesn't matter how much effort you put into it. If it's not something that that particular emperor is interested in, if it's not something that, that serves their purpose, they're happy to have just chalk off all of, that, all of that resource, all of that time, all of that energy. As we look back on Hadrian's achievements, yeah. we're obviously going to be doing more episodes as part of our mini-series on Hadrian's Wall, but uh, what would be the sort of enduring memories of Hadrian's legacy? Well, Hadrian's legacy is manifold. He changes the culture, he changes the policy, and very much 
changes the physical fabric of the Roman Empire. But if your interest is in Roman Britain, as, as mine is, then it's really difficult to look past Hadrian's Wall, which I think is, is something of an encapsulation of his achievement. The wall is by far the most complex and substantial Roman structure surviving in Britain, and it's central to our understanding of Roman life in the province. Now, as part of this four-part series, we're going to explore how it took many hands to build the wall, to sustain it, and indeed to preserve it over 1900 years of its existence. But it's Hadrian's decision, it's his bold and ambitious policy to make such a show of stability that really changes the landscape of Northern England and creates what is to become a deep repository of archaeological knowledge. So I think that Hadrian's Wall is his profound gift, one that has ensured that the Romans are firmly fixed in our conception of Britain's past. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we go back to the Stone Age to ask our experts everything you wanted to know about the Neolithic period. There is some really interesting new evidence published in a new paper just before Christmas looking at ancient DNA and what that can tell us. One of the things that ancient DNA can do is help us to estimate population numbers. Thanks for listening. See you next time.